Please remain standing if you're able for the reading, today's reading, the scripture of Genesis chapter 25, 19 through 34. These are descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethel, Aramean, of Padanamar. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Padanamara, sister of Laban and Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be the stronger, and the other, the elder, shall serve the younger. When her time gave, came to give birth, birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle. So they named him Esau, after his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff for I am famished. Therefore he was called Edom. Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is my birthright to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went away. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I want to begin with, by thanking uh, those of you who were present with us yesterday in the hunger event. Uh, Laura has already shared thanks, but to the 508 persons who came uh, to be a part of that event yesterday, we're so grateful and for the privilege that was ours to share in this way. Uh, those who were part of the staff of Stop Hunger now relayed to us that over the last five years that God has used us to prepare no less than a half million meals for those in need. And what a joy is ours to participate in such a sacrament for those in need. And uh, I think that it's rather providential that having experienced that together, that today we gather at the table ourselves to be fed uh, by the grace and mercy of God. So it's a great joy to be in worship today, especially after yesterday. I noticed uh, driving in this morning that our Presbyterian friends down the road are also having a blessing of the animals at four. Ours is from two to four. If you would like a blessing that is predestined for your dog, you can go down the road. 
Otherwise, for the rest of you who have free will pups and cats, uh, we'll see you between two and four. So we're near the end, two more weeks of this series called Human Purpose. We're in the second section of Genesis, you know, the ancestral origin stories of Israel. And we spent the last three Sundays, weekends, on Abraham, whose name means exalted father, Sarah, princess, who gave birth to the heir, the promised heir of God who would continue the covenant named Isaac, whose name means he laughs. Every name tells a story. This morning, we're going to move on to the grandchildren of Abram, to the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. Now, I don't have to tell you that there is no subject that is more important to the church or to the world than children and grandchildren. I have noticed that grandparents and grandchildren have much in common, including a common enemy. My parents and my children both have a common enemy, namely Sherry and me. But there is no subject to anyone more important these days than our kids. They are the greatest source of joy, and they are sometimes the deepest source of our heartache. We're in the midst of a baby boom at Bumsey right now. I don't know if you're aware of that, and certainly our staff has done its part in that baby boom. We celebrated last week the birth of Stephen Shane Slowey, the third, this kid, nine pounds, four ounces. He is a hoss. Uh, they are going to call him Finn, P-H-I-N-N, which oddly enough and ironically to the Scripture today is a form of the Hebrew name Phineas, which literally means oracle, revelation, or vision. The story of Abraham's twin grandsons begins with an oracle, a vision foreshadowing the future. Dot read for us how Isaac, the promised heir, the son of Abraham, married late in life. He was 40 years of age when he and Rebekah tied the knot. And they, like the parents before them, they also were barren. In other words, they were unable to reinvent their future. They could not reproduce. But the Scripture says, after much prayer and much intercession, that long about their 20th anniversary of marriage, the news began to spread, they're expecting. It was a difficult pregnancy. The children jostled and kicked so much so that the Scripture says that Rebecca wondered if she would survive it. She's not the last Jewish mother to wonder if she would survive her children. And many of you have felt the same way. And so in the midst of a difficult pregnancy, what does one do? One faithful to God, but inquire of God. You notice how it said that, inquire of God. You know what that really means? She was venting with God. And the Lord gave her an oracle, a premonition. It's verse 23. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. The struggle between these boys would intensify after their birth. They could not have been more opposite, 
It is amazing, isn't it, how two children from the same household, from the same parents, from the same family can be so radically different from one another. Esau, we're told, was red. He came out red. Perhaps he was a ginger. He was ruddy and hairy. And as he emerged from Rebecca's womb, the midwife noticed a little hand <laughs> grasping his heel. And that hand belonged to Jacob, whose very name means heel. Now, I don't know where you come from, but back in my day, when you called someone a heel, those were fighting words. It's not a good thing. It also, in Hebrew, means to supplant or to cheat. And so right away, the name, here's the names again, begin to telegraph what is to come in the future. Esau was a rugged, outdoors-type guy who lettered, who lettered in football and loved to hunt. And Jacob was calculating and shrewd and actually more at home in the kitchen than in the fields. One of the things that you notice about this family is that it's pretty dysfunctional. A dysfunctional family is any family with more than one person in it. I mean, am I the only one that has a dysfunctional family? I saw a t-shirt attached to an odd-looking person the other day that said, insanity is hereditary, you get it from your kids. <laughs> and so it is sometimes. It's amazing to me that when you read this book, when you read the sacred canon, there are no stained glass figures in the scripture. There aren't any halos. This is not a Norman Rockwell picture. I read recently that Norman Rockwell was married for 60 years to three different wives. We're all dysfunctional. And one of the things that I so appreciate about the Bible is that it never sugarcoats the reality of our humanity. The people of God are not Disney characters. They are not superheroes. They are real people with real problems and real emotions and real heartaches. In fact, isn't it fascinating that even Isaac and Rebecca have their issues? They played favorites. Esau was his daddy's pet and Jacob was a mama's boy. Went to MBA, Mama's Boys Academy. <laughs> Kidding. Isn't it funny that every dysfunctional family has a crazy uncle, right? Either a weird aunt or a crazy uncle. I give you Uncle Laban, who comes along later in the story. You remember after Jacob stole the birthright and the blessing that with his mother's encouragement, Rebecca's encouragement, he fled Esau's wrath. Esau had threatened to kill him. And so he went to live in Haran with Uncle Laban. I'm not sure that was a good call. He agreed to work for Uncle Laban for seven years for the love of his life, Rachel, whom he loved. But then after seven years on the honeymoon night, Laban pulls a bait and switch and Jacob wakes up the next morning beside Leah. Seven more years he worked for Rachel. And what's happening here is that Jacob is getting a taste of his own medicine. What goes around comes around. 
Now, personally, I want to tell you that I'm encouraged by such dysfunction because it gives me hope for me and for some of you. It reminds me that when God calls, God doesn't call perfect people. God calls imperfect, defective, deficient, deceptive, flawed, beautiful people and employs and empowers us to bless the world. And what's fascinating to me about these 12 chapters in Genesis that begins in Genesis 25 is that God does this in such unorthodox, unconventional ways that wind up completely challenging the social order. Now, you see this in the last phrase of the oracle, and the elder shall serve the younger. In Middle Eastern culture, the firstborn son always occupied the place of prominence in the family. It was the firstborn male who was the privileged one. In fact, he received a double portion of the estate, of the inheritance when his daddy passed. After the funeral, it was he who would become the patriarch, the leader of the tribe, the judge, the head, solely because of his birth order. And yet, in Rebecca's oracle, in her vision, what God is doing is he is inverting the order. He lifts up the unprivileged. He blesses the unblessed. Boy, talk about dysfunction. That sounds like a dysfunctional God to me. It's a reversal of the status quo. And it's in that line, in that vision, in that oracle, and the elder shall serve the younger. It reminds me of a rabbi in Galilee who once said, and the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. It's radical. I think one of the things that led the people to put Jesus on a cross was in Matthew 21, Jesus was at a preacher's meeting one day, And he said to the chief priests and scribes, if you can believe this, hey, guys, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom before you. Well, the chief priest called the bishop and arranged for another pastor. It's a reversal. The reversal in this oracle becomes a recurring pattern in the Scripture. Notice, it is Abel rather than Cain who is chosen of God, second born. It's Isaac instead of Ishmael. It's Jacob instead of Esau. It's Joseph instead of Reuben, the son of Jacob's old age, to whom the brothers will one day bow down. And in the fullness of time, it is David, who is the runt of Jesse's litter, who will be anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the ruler of Israel. This theme in the Scripture in Genesis that begins has its zenith in Jesus. When his mother is pregnant with Jesus, Mary had an oracle in which God said, I will cast down the mighty from their thrones and lift up the lowly. 
In fact, you see that also, that oracle in the life of the early church. In 1 Corinthians 1.27, where Paul says, and God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the strong. I, I think you can make a case for the fact that even God giving this vision to Rebecca instead of Isaac, the patriarch, is radical. And this is the way of God. Isaiah 55 was right. God's ways are not our ways. And God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And so God takes a heel named Jacob and chooses him over the privileged one, the elder, who disregards his birthright, who trades it in for a pot of stew. Unlike Esau, however, Jacob is absolutely preoccupied with the blessing of God. He is obsessed with the covenant, and yet this blessing, this privilege, would not gain him power and prestige. You know what it got him? Humiliation. I was reading the words the other day of a great Irish monastic named Nivard Kinsella, who said there is only one certain test of virtue, and that is humiliation. The acceptance of humiliation alone shows the depth and reality of our humanity. It reminded me of something that Richard Rohr once said. He said, I pray for one humiliation every day. And I thought to myself, I've never had to ask for it. <laughs> Think about it. Because of the blessing of God, Jacob is going to have to leave home. Because of the blessing of God, he's going to become a fugitive. He will never see his mother and father again. Because of the blessing of God, Jacob becomes the object of Uncle Laban's manipulation, because of the blessing of God, finally, Jacob is led 20 years later to face his greatest fear, his brother. This is my favorite vignette of Jacob Esau. In Genesis 32, the night before the encounter between these two brothers at odds, Jacob, you remember, has a wrestling match with God. You ever had that happen where you're facing some difficult tomorrow and you can't sleep and you toss and you turn and you're wrestling in prayer with God all night long and probably wrestling with yourself? And in the midst of that wrestling match with a difficult tomorrow, God does an odd thing. Again, this is kind of dysfunctional sounding. God injures Jacob. He wounds his hip. And yet Jacob will not let go of God without a blessing. And God does bless him. And then watch this. He gives him a new name. You remember what he renamed Jacob? Israel. It means one who strives with God, one who wrestles with God and endures. And Jacob's story is actually the history of Israel. An unchosen nomadic group of nobodies is going to be chosen to bring blessing to the world. 
It is personified, the history of Israel, in an unprivileged son who becomes the privileged one, but who discovers that with this blessing comes a great burden (laughs) that includes suffering. On the day that he meets his greatest fear, after that wrestling match, when he goes out to meet his brother, what's interesting is when he walks out to him, he's not strutting anymore, he's limping. And as the cheater approaches the red one, he bows down seven times, and his brother who wanted payback when he saw his weakness He ran to meet him. He opened his arms, he hugged his neck, and he wept over him. And all that history, all that dysfunction, all that pain just came pouring out because the one who took his blessing came limping in humility. Walter Brueggemann, who is an authority on the Old Testament, has this to say about this passage. Israel is not formed by success or shrewdness or land. Israel is formed by an assault from God. Perhaps it is grace, but it's not the kind of grace we usually imagine. As Flannery O'Connor wrote of St. Paul, I reckon the Lord knew that the only way to make a Christian out of this one was to knock him off his horse. And the only way to stop Jacob from trying to run his life by success and craftiness and the accumulation of flocks and land was to knock his hip out of joint permanently. And yet in his weakness, he found his strength. He's renamed. He's no longer Jacob, the heel grabber, He's Israel, the God wrestler. And this is the name that will be given to his children and grandchildren and to the nation that will be formed by those who come after him. I was listening recently to the testimony of Ben Zobrist. Do you know that name? MVP, 2016, Chicago Cubs won their first World Series. Ben lives in Franklin today. I'm hoping that he'll be traded to the Atlanta Braves soon. In fact, tonight would be good. (laughs) Ben said that he felt it was not only important to give glory to God when you succeed, but when you fail. He said that he had heard too many athletes, too many friends use Philippians 4.13 as a pump-up verse that would allow them to do things on the field that they've never done before. You know the verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But, said Ben, when you really look at the context of the passage, what Paul is really saying is, I can even do jails and thorns. I can do persecutions and weakness. I can do injury and woundedness, shipwrecks and crosses because of Christ who is my strength. If that's true, then I need to learn to give God glory as much when I fail as when we succeed. 
I close with a poem before we come to the table. I, it, it's an anonymous. I have no idea who wrote it, but I think it must have been dedicated to Jacob. The language is masculine. You can translate. But it also sounds as though it was written for Jesus. Listen carefully. When God wants to drill a man and skill a man and fill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world would be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands till his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes then he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. This morning, as you come to the table, don't just bring your shininess with you. Bring your dysfunction. Bring your wounds. Bring your brokenness. Bring your pain. Bring it all. Come to the place of encounter, but when you come, don't come with a swagger. Come with a stagger. We're staggered when we receive the blessing of this table. And sometimes when we taste the bread and drink the cup, we realize God's purpose fulfilled in us and we know what we're all about. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.